0: Welcome back to EU Democracy Explained. In the last episode, we explored the concept of democratic accountability and how it applies to the European Commission. And we discovered the institutional triangle, which is how and where EU legislation gets made. Now, in that triangle, there is a dual legitimacy, where European citizens' interests are represented via two avenues, the directly elected European Parliament on the one hand, and the institution we're going to talk about today on the other. The Council of the European Union is where citizens are represented via each of their national governments. We'll explore its makeup, its role and internal functioning, and we'll discover what its crucial role in the legislative process might mean in terms of defining what the EU actually is. The Council of the European Union, commonly referred to as the Council, was established in the 1950s under the name Council of Ministers in order to provide a state-driven counterbalance to the supranational high authority of the then-European coal and steel community, the body that would later develop into the modern European Commission. Before we go further, though, we need to clarify a common misunderstanding. You see, the Council of the European Union, even if it is referred to in shorthand as the Council, is not the only Council in the system. There's also the European Council, but these are very different institutions, with different members and completely different roles. While the Council of the EU has its origins in the treaties, the European Council was created in 1974 by the heads of state or government of the member states. It only became an EU institution in the Lisbon Treaty of 2009, the agreement which sets out the functioning of the European Union and which is still in force today. Lisbon codified European Council practices that had been developed since its foundation, It added a full-time president, you might recognise names like Herman Van Rompuy, Donald Tusk or Charles Michel, and limited the institution's composition to the heads of state or government, whereas previously foreign ministers had participated as well. The European Council President and European Commission President are also members. While the Council of the EU decides on legislation within the institutional triangle, the European Council defines the Union's general political direction and priorities. In other words, it sets the agenda. Now, you can understand why the difference between these two bodies can appear confusing at first. You have two institutions that, first of all, sound very similar, and which both represent aspects of the national governments of the member states. But they have different memberships, leadership structures, frequencies of meetings, and crucially they have strikingly different roles in the EU's institutional structure. We'll return to the European Council in a future episode but now that we're clear on the differences between the two, let's delve deeper into the role and structure of the Council of the European Union. The Council, legally speaking, is one single entity, but it's divided into ten different configurations, each focusing on a specific policy area with the relevant national government ministers attending. These are General Affairs Economic and Financial Affairs Justice and Home Affairs Employment, Social Policy, Health and Consumer Affairs Competitiveness transport, telecommunications and energy, agriculture and fisheries, environment, and education, youth, culture and sport. One important configuration is foreign affairs. Unlike the others, this one is chaired by the EU's high representative. Now, that's a lot to consider, but the detail of each configuration's work is a story for another time. For now, let's focus on the main benefit of structuring an institution's work in this way. And it's actually a similar benefit, although applied differently, to the one that the Commission pursues when it divides itself into policy-relevant directorates general, or that the Parliament pursues when it appoints its members to committees or subcommittees. It allows the institution to develop specialised, thematic expertise linked to each different policy area. This kind of division within a governmental institution is commonplace across global democracies, and it's actually the same benefit that national governments are seeking when they divide themselves into different ministries, But, as we know, the EU shouldn't be compared to a national government. For the Council, which still operates within a wider system we shouldn't forget, the benefit of dividing its configurations by policy area is that each relevant minister from the national governments can contribute where they have the most relevant expertise, and crucially, where they're empowered by their governments to make decisions. The extra scope for detailed discussion this structure affords is reflected in the fact that the Council meets, in its various guises, very frequently. 70 to 80 times per year. Different configurations meet with different frequency. Some, like general affairs and foreign affairs, among others, meet on a monthly basis. Others, like education, youth, culture and sport, for instance, meet less frequently, maybe twice per semester. This variety is a function of two key factors. First, the council's legislative function, because in order to decide on a proposal dealing with a specific policy area, the relevant council configuration needs to meet. And second, the nature of the file. For instance, foreign affairs requires regular exchanges and political decisions, so naturally that configuration meets more regularly. As we discovered last episode, the institutional triangle is the key component of how EU legislation gets passed. And part of that triangle is that, whether under the ordinary legislative procedure or not, the Council needs to decide yes or no on the proposals coming from the Commission. This requires an intense commitment on the part of the Council to make sure all the files are addressed adequately – and to ensure a proper dialogue between the Council and Parliament as well as with the Commission. Hence a significant support structure for the decision-makers in each Council meeting, and a high frequency of meetings. The Council is able to manage this intense workload with the help of 3,000 or so civil servants in the General Secretariat of the Council. Now, all EU institutions have a secretariat devoted to implementing their work but the GSC is unique insofar as it assists the work not only of the Council but also of the European Council. Some of its core tasks include assisting, advising and helping to coordinate the work of both institutions, providing logistical support to meetings and preparing draft agendas, reports, notes and meeting minutes. The GSC also has its own translation service, which you can imagine is crucial when it comes to ensuring that proposals make sense in all of the 24 official languages of the Union. Finally, the GSC has a crucial role in supporting something called the Rotating Presidency of the Council. It advises the Presidency and prepares briefings for it before each Council or Coropair meeting. The Rotating Presidency is perhaps the most unique aspect of the Council's structure and functioning. A different EU member state holds the reins of the institution on a six-month basis. This means that in each configuration of the Council, except for Foreign Affairs, the relevant national government minister from the country currently holding the rotating presidency chairs. Each new presidency works in a so-called trio with two other presidencies, forming 18-month blocks, and the General Secretariat of the Council works very closely with national politicians and civil servants to ensure each presidency runs smoothly. What this system allows for is each of the EU member states, from the biggest, richest and most powerful to the very smallest, can hold the reins on an equal basis – This gives a sense of real ownership over the agenda and creates a club atmosphere between the 27, the benefit of which, in terms of working together in the best interests of citizens, cannot be overstated. If you're interested in when your country will next hold the rotating presidency, you can even look it up on the council's website, where the presidencies are listed up to 2030. To decide, the council has three voting options on the table. The first is unanimity, where everyone must agree but where there is an option to abstain. So you still have broad agreement, but a country abstaining from a motion isn't a formal veto. Unanimity applies to the most sensitive policy areas, where major national interests are at stake and it's most important that everyone agrees. These are areas like common foreign and security policy, European citizenship and EU membership, among others. It also applies to some limited areas of policies like taxation. The second way is qualified majority voting, where a decision can only be taken if 55% of the member states, representing 65% of the EU's population, agree. Now, this does mean that your government may not be in favour of the decision taken, but it does guarantee a so-called double majority of support, thus giving a solid foundation of legitimacy to whatever decision is taken. Finally, the third possibility is for the council to vote by a simple majority, but this is only ever used in cases of internal procedural decisions or to request the Commission to undertake a study or submit a proposal. It's a complex mechanism, but it does give ample opportunity for each country's voice to be heard. Some people have described the Council as being like a black hole, but once you look closer, you see that that's actually not the case. To ensure transparency, voting results are automatically made public and ministers are able to add explanatory notes to add context to their decisions. The legislative documents that go to the Council are made publicly available, and when the Council discusses legislation, the session is live streamed. This is no smoke filled back room. Rather, each of the 27 governments currently in the EU get to decide on which legislation gets passed and which doesn't. If you remember the concept of vertical accountability that we discussed last episode, this is an example of precisely that a transparency mechanism that allows you as a citizen to keep tabs on what your government is doing on your behalf. This representation of the national governments forms a key part of the EU's dual legitimacy and opens up a new question about the very nature of the EU as an entity. It's difficult to consider the nature of the EU without getting into the weeds of academic discourse, and entire libraries' worth of books have been written on the subject, which is far beyond the scope of this episode. In short, there are a number of different theories that you could use to analyse what the modern EU is, could become, or should strive towards. Some who prefer to look at the EU institutions through a supranational lens are in favour of building the EU towards a federal system. Others analyse the EU through the theory of intergovernmental cooperation, where the main emphasis is on the role of national governments as the drivers of EU integration. As we've discovered over the course of this series, though, these common refrains don't quite tell the full story. As we know, the EU is based on dual legitimacy provided by the democratically elected national governments in the European Council and the Council and by the directly elected European Parliament. Governments' interests and citizens' interests. You then bring in an independent European Commission acting in the interest of the EU as a whole and all the other institutions that we discussed in the last episode. The way decisions get made in this system is defined by the competences granted to the European Union, which themselves are set out in detail in the treaties on which the EU's structures and functioning are based. Some competences are exclusive, meaning the EU alone is able to pass legislation. These include trade, monetary policy and more. Some competences, meanwhile, are shared, meaning both the EU and national governments are able to pass laws. These include employment and social affairs, among others. Meanwhile, some are referred to as supporting competences, where the EU can only support or complement the action of its member states, and mirroring this, the way the council works also depends on which policy area is being discussed. So you could say that in some aspects the EU has more autonomy, although not quite in a fully federal way, and that in others it functions in a much more intergovernmental manner. In the end, Active choices by EU member states are the key drivers of this integration process, whereby European countries deepen and widen their areas of integration or cooperation in political, economic and legal affairs, among others. The proposals may come from the Commission, which represents the interests of the EU as a whole, but they're decided on by the ministers in the Council, who represent the interests of the EU member states. And remember, the European Council, which, among other responsibilities, sets the agenda, is made up of the heads of state or government, and it mainly functions by consensus. So you have a system where national leaders in the European Council set the agenda, and where proposals can't become law unless national ministers in the Council consent. The EU is a complex beast, with elements from all the different schools of integration theory dotted about. It's important to remember that. It's too simplistic to say the EU is only intergovernmental, or to artificially oppose any two schools of integration theory, intergovernmentalism versus supranationalism. As an entity, the EU embraces plenty of different approaches in order to find a compromise. And let's think back to the different voting systems we explored earlier. In the council, where the emphasis is being put on finding compromise, working together and reaching agreement, you have an inbuilt structure that helps to make policy by agreeing together you have a deliberative approach that allows for capacity-building and a healthy exchange of expertise and best practices between the member states. And, ultimately, you have a compromise that helps build an ever-closer union between EU countries on their own terms. Next episode, we'll be looking into the body that represents the EU citizens directly, the European Parliament. And, while to the casual observer, it might seem that the Parliament is the natural place to find representation in the EU – the representation that we see in the council is just as important. We see it in the crucial role it plays on deciding on commission proposals, most often in co-decision with the parliament. So next time one of your government ministers comes to Brussels for a council meeting, pay attention. You might just learn something. And if that minister comes home to complain about the latest imposition from the Brussels bureaucrats, remember, their role in the council is crucial in approving EU legislation. In the meantime, let us know your thoughts. Did you know about the different council configurations and their roles? Do you think it's important that voting procedures ensure enough protection for countries that may not support new proposals? And what about the bigger question on the fundamental nature of the EU? This podcast is co-funded by the European Union. The views and opinions expressed are, however, those of the authors only – and do not necessarily reflect those of the European Union or the European Education and Culture Executive Agency. Neither the European Union nor the granting authority can be held responsible for them.